have, if I can boil down 250 pages to one sentence, it's talk to your boys. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. And I love to hear from my listeners. My website, zestfulaging.com, makes it easy for you to leave comments or suggestions. I really do appreciate your feedback. Our music is provided by Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, was just released, and you can find out more at judybanker.com. Well, I've got my Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. We have a great interview for you today. Peggy Orenstein is a New York Times bestselling author and has been featured on Nightline, CBS This Morning, The Today Show, NPR's Fresh Air and Morning Edition, and freshly off her interview at Good Morning America. <laughs> for her new book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity, Ornstein interviewed boys from ages 16 to 22 about their views on sex and intimacy, and the book has already received praise for its importance and relevance, especially with the advent of hashtag MeToo. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you for having me. I'm imagining uh, you got up pretty early this morning. (laughs) Well, I'm on the East Coast today. Okay, yes, but uh, you just came off your interview at Good Morning Oh, that was taped. Oh, it was taped. (laughs) Oh, I imagined that you had gotten up and, you know, they had you up at 6 a.m. Yeah, usually that's what they do, but for some reason it was taped, so I got to do it at like noon the other day. Oh, well, that's that's the way to do it. it. Yeah. It sounds like your book has really hit a tender spot. Yeah, it's been um, incredible. And I really, you know, I, I was thinking about this um, yesterday. I, if I had, I don't think even five, six years ago, a book like this would have captured the imagination and felt as urgent to parents and communities as it apparently does. And as I hoped it would, I, I, I people seem very hungry to have the discussion about boys now. And I think it's because, you know, it's because of Me Too. Um, mm-hmm. But what Me Too did was create, you know, obviously it revealed sexual misconduct across every sector of society. And it created an imperative to reduce sexual violence. But to me, I think the upside um, is that it also opened this little, you know, crack in the edifice that allow gave this this opportunity to have a real discussion and engage boys in conversation maybe for the first time about sex emotionally and emotional intimacy and masculinity Mm -hmm. yeah i can see that the timing was perfect and i i love that expression people were hungry you really get the sense of like what are we doing here you know as a psychotherapist i i, I see a lot of undergrads and um 
um, near uh, Syracuse University. And I never used to ask about first sexual experience so so uh, regularly. Um, and what I've found over the years, and you won't be surprised to hear this at all, is that most of the time, it's not consensual. Mm. You know, there's this sort of expression like, oh, yeah, well, I was kind of drunk at the time. And now that's something that I always ask because it seems so important. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I guess that that's sort of true, too, that that guy's expectation is very, very low in a way of, of the quality of their sexual experience. It's one of the things that I suggest at the end of the book that parents, you know, I know you'd rather poke yourself in the eye with a fork, but that, you know, talking to guys about like, it's not just about an orgasm, but what about the quality and context of that orgasm? Do you want your partner just to be somebody that you basically, you know, masturbate into? Or Mm -hmm. do you want, you know, what does it mean to have a mutually gratifying, connected Mm -hmm. sexual experience? And if boys, because we don't talk to our sons, you know, where they get their sex education, we don't talk, parents don't talk to them, schools don't talk to them. Mm -hmm. They get it from the media. They get it from pornography, they get it from one another. And that is really a very, you know, commodified, transactional idea Mm. of what sex is. Yeah, you know what I found, and um, I don't know exactly how this fits in with your research, but the women that I talked to seem to want it to be meaningless and seem to want to be okay with hookup culture. I'm not hearing a lot of people say, you know, this is this is for the birds. I'm not interested in these one night stands. It's like this is what is available. This is what my peers are doing. And I guess it's going to have to be okay. But there's still this longing of, are they going to call me? Are they going to text me? Or are they going to ghost me? Most young people are ambivalent at best about hookup culture, but it's what's on offer. And it's true. There's a scene in Boys and Sex where I am talking with a group of um, college students, boys and girls, the day after a party. And you know, every conversation I have about hookup culture kind of devolves into um, uh, what they hate about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, my job, I feel, is not to tell young people the context in, in which they are to have sex, but to describe sort of the terrain of what that looks like and what the outcomes were. And what I said, you know, what I say to girls when, I'm, when I was doing that work was um, in a hookup, you're likely to get, you know, an adrenaline rush a warm body, a story to tell your friends, mm-hmm. you're less likely to get the tools you need. You're less likely to get good sex or the tools that you need to have good sex or create an emotionally, you know, a meaningful relationship. And I think that's the same for boys with the additional piece that it, the hookup culture presumes that they have no capacity for love mm-hmm. or vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know what I had uh, read, and I'm sure you have, the book was so comprehensive and so deeply researched, but what I tell some of my uh, female clients is, of course, you're going to feel an attachment because there's a biological process going on when you have sex with somebody it's not an intellectual process, but there's a biological process that's activated that says, yes, we are now attached. And so when you're feeling those cravings and longings, it makes sense in terms of evolution. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's part of why hookup culture um, revolves around alcohol. 
because alcohol uh, is you know supposed to establish meaninglessness. It creates Lisa Wade, who wrote this great book, American Hookup, um, calls it compulsory carelessness that's mm-hmm. necessary in order to engage in a hookup. Um, it also can complicate lines of consent, which is a huge problem. Um, but I remember talking to a guy um, the morning, again, the morning after a party. And, you know, it was always, it was so interesting always to start getting guys' perspectives on this because, you know, girls are, always will say that he didn't text, he didn't get in touch, you know, why do guys do this? Um, and so he was telling me about the morning after hookup and he said, you know, he, he, he saw the girl on the street um, or on campus and uh, averted his eyes. <laughs> and I said, why? Why would you avert your eyes with somebody that you had intercourse with last night? And, and he said, um, because I don't know if she thought it was just a drunk at the party one night thing. And I'm not going to act like I thought it was something more, only to find out that she didn't think it was something mm. more. And then I'm the one who showed weakness and vulnerability. And I said, so you would rather, he said, just weak. I, I, I added vulnerable. Um, I said, so you would rather, you know, not have the opportunity to make the connection that you wish you could make, because he would have liked to have had a girlfriend, um, than to risk a moment of vulnerability with another person mm-hmm. and he's and he just kind of went yeah that's mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so it's this culture that creates that and i think that the reason that it you know it i there i've met boys and girls who embrace hookup culture and i've met boys and girls who feel ill-served by it the boys tend to be less angry and feel less betrayed in that culture but they don't feel well served by it either and mm-hmm. it really underscores that for 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 boys that um, socialization and pressure they feel to disconnect from heart and to um, express invulnerability. And, and I feel like at the heart of boys and sex, so much of what is going on is boys struggle with the notion of emotional vulnerability mm-hmm. and denying it and deflecting it and capitulating to it. And, you know, as, as somebody who works in this field, you know that vulnerability is not only fundamental to human well-being, but essential to having a satisfying relationship. And when we cut boys off from that so systematically, we reduce their capacity to have the kinds of relationships they want to have, you know, as young people and as adults. Mm-hmm. You know, these interviews were were really in-depth, and I wonder if there was a tug for you, you know, you're doing your research, um, you're a writer, but was there a pull at all to become a bit of a mentor and a confidant? You know, it's funny. I I hadn't anticipated how many people were going to ask me that question, and I'm getting asked that a lot. It's interesting. I feel that. I mean, I always feel an you know a, a real um, empathy for people that I write about. I try to write from you know from a place of compassion and curiosity and understanding. Um, but I feel like my job, it, it would be inappropriate for me to be giving advice to my subjects. I'm not, I'm a journalist, you know, but I, what I try to do is give them the space to explore their thoughts and feelings. And, and I think by bearing witness in that way, that that actually gives them something and that they, you know, after interviews, they will say all the time that felt 
really therapeutic. I really, you know, said some things I never said before. I really thought about things I never thought before. And I always would think, gosh, I'm a complete stranger. Imagine if they could have these conversations with the actual adults in their lives or one another, what that would mean for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about maybe you being a stranger that makes it more safe. Probably. I, I think that that's probably, and, and anonymity and, yeah. the, and the contract that we've entered into. Yes. Um, as, a, you know, they have, we have agreed, I am interviewing them about mm-hmm. their sex lives. And I always kind of start out by, you know, talking about what were, you know, the parameters and also throwing out a bunch of, um, I tend to throw out a bunch of vulgar language that, you know, I say, okay, you can use any words you want to um, in this conversation. If you say, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I say some things that boys say. Yeah. And, you know, that's cool. Ah, so it was, yeah, so it's a clear permission slip. <laughs> I can curse too. Permission. And like in real life, even talking to you, like, I can't say that stuff because that's not who I am as a person. Ah, but in my so interviews, I'm a, you know, you're different as in your professional life, you're doing a different thing than you would do if you were just like you. That's, that's really interesting. And, and they texted you as time went on. They do, they do. And they still do. I have gotten so many, especially now that the book came out yesterday, I just am being, I feel, I, I was laughing to myself last night because I was up at midnight t- um, texting teenage boys and I thought, <laughs> this my is mom's going to be imagined. really mad at me about this. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, wow. But you know, don't, don't, you know, honey, you shouldn't have what I always, you know, will we'll say to my daughter is there's, there's no, you know, we have obviously we have a no phone in the bedroom at night, you know, at, at uh, bedtime after bedtime rule. Right. You know, because she would be up all night texting her friends. And I'm like, here I am texting yeah. the teenage boys. Um, but yeah, and, and one, and one of, actually one of the one of the scenes in, in the book that is my favorite. Um, one of the boys texts me while I'm talking to another boy. Oh, and right. he asks, he is a boy who actually rejected the hookup culture, but now he's looking at colleges where he was admitted to decide where to go to school. And he's finding that those schools have a pretty heavy um, hookup scene and he wants to know what to do about it. And he sends me this really, you know, funny text like, WTF, it's like an orgy down here. Do I just go to Bone Town and worry about emotional <laughs> connection later? What do I do? Oh my gosh. And so I was talking to this other boy who had started out being a real, um, like really sort of t- getting a lot of um, self-worth out of, you know, what, what they would call their body count, you know, yes. out of sleeping with a bunch of girls, uh, but then had, you know, after a couple of years had, had gotten to a place where he felt that that was hollow and it wasn't what he wanted. So I said, what would you say to this boy? I read him the text. We were, we were Skyping and, um, and they had this conversation through me. Mm. Um, and in the end, the boy who was texting said, thank you so much. It was all about authenticity and not having to follow the script. And, you know, just cause you, it's what you think people um, are doing, you know, if you just follow that, it's going to kill you. You, you know, it, it was really bad for me and, you know, all this stuff. And, and he, and the boy texted me, you know, thank you so much. That was just what I needed to hear. And he sent me a little heart emoji. Oh um, my you know, goodness. Know. And, and again, I thought I'm a stranger. They're strangers. They don't know each other. They don't even know each other's names. And look at what the opening up just this kind of conversation can do to, you know, offer support and perspective for another, you know, for these boys. And I, and I have stayed in touch with that particular boy, the texting boy, um, 
He's now a sophomore in college, and he has stayed his course. He has been a person who values connection um, over, you know, kind of hookup body count. And Although that can have grave consequences, uh, as you point out, in terms of his social capital. and It can, and that was an experience he actually had. He, he, he was somebody who, when I met him in high school, when he was 16 or 17, said... Um, you know, guys, you hook up, you, the hookup culture is not about the person that, it's not about your partner. It's about mm -hmm. the story you're bringing back from mm -hmm. that night. And so it's really about the invisible audience that's in the room with you when mm -hmm. you're having that encounter. Um, as one guy said, you know, there's not a lot of eye contact. Um, you know, you may not say very much. Uh, it's like you're acting vulnerable, but you're not being vulnerable with somebody you don't know or care about very much. And, you know, it's not even really that fun. Um, but it's and but they would talk a lot about it being a competition among guys. They would talk a lot about uh, what this boy said was, um, you know, you want to impress your guys. And mm -hmm. so maybe you're going to be maybe because of that, you're going to be a little dominating. You're going to push a little bit because the girl is a means for you to get off and for you to brag. And that's what you mm -hmm. learn from your friends. So mm -hmm. that was where that guy started out. And then he um, he had just, he. I think it's who he was, but he also had a bad experience where a girl went and told all her friends that, you know, his, his nails were ragged, he was bad, he didn't know what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he was so shamed um, that that he sort of reevaluated the whole um, situation. And, and he did, his social capital plummeted, and it took him... A while to get back, but but I think you know he was somebody who had he did have a lot of support from his family, and he was somebody who had uh, a lot of discussion, um, and he could withstand that. One of the um, uh, parts of your book that really struck me the hardest is this idea that no one thinks they're a rapist, and that you talk about these boys as good boys. That some of these kids are like, you know, they're, they're smart, they're um, successful, they're personable, they kind of want to do the right thing. Um, and yet, in this realm, they do not that they really fall short. They do. <laughs> they do. They do. And, and they were they were great. You know, it's, it's uh, what we tend to think that anybody who assaults is a monster and that only monsters assault. Mm -hmm. And the, that blinds us to the everyday kind of coercion and misconduct that, you know, that good guys engage in. And, and when we say that, you know, a good guy can't be a rapist, and therefore, since I'm a good guy, what I did could not possibly be misconduct, mm -hmm. there's a lot of mental gymnastics that go on mm -hmm. to make that happen. Um, and we have to recognize that, you know, a good guy can do a bad thing and and how we reckon with that how they reckon with that what pathways we create for them to take accountability for that um, is really the issue um, not just being in denial and that's why at the at the end of the book I did a chapter not the very end but close to the end of the book I did a chapter on a male and female student that go through a restorative justice mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. after he assaults her and is completely oblivious to the fact that that has happened. He thinks it was just kind of an awkward hookup. Mm -hmm. And they go through, it, it's a four, the story takes place over four years, but, and what the, the restorative justice process is an alternative to 
traditional punishment. And, and I think it's great because we, you know, we're not going to be able to suspend or expel our way out of campus assault. And ideally, you know, there's an education level that's happening all along the way that would reduce all of this, but we still need methods to deal with it. And a lot of times students who've been harmed don't want their, the, the person who has harmed them to be expelled or to be suspended or to be jailed. They want them to understand what they did mm-hmm. and hear their pain, and they want them not to do it again and to go forward as a better person. And restorative justice is a process through which um, that can happen and that also keeps the focus um, and the control with the the survivor with the person who's been hurt because a lot of times in those campus proceedings that person completely loses a voice completely loses control and that can feel like a real betrayal as well but what was really interesting about that chapter to me was the boy's arc because he starts out as you know not to stereotype but truly the most typical frat bro you know he grows Mm -hmm. up and he's had you know no sex education he says he's basically learned from you know national lampoon movies Mm -hmm. and um porn and he's very pushy in his sexual relationships. He's very coercive. Um, he doesn't, he, when he looks back, he thinks this was not the first girl he assaulted. And he trans, He has such an amazing arc to being truly the best of men and being able to look what he did in the eye and make change. And I think that that was because the process really supported him in doing that instead of just shaming and punishing him. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's necessary to just purely do a, 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 yeah. that. But but he was willing to, part of the restorative process is the, the, the person who's caused harm has to be willing to say, yes, I did. They have to admit to what they did and and engage, you know, actively and sincerely in the process. But it, it was tempting to call Samir, that's his name, um, you know, kind of a unicorn in, in looking at his transformation. But he was so typical when he started out that I felt like if he could get to where he was, that many more boys could do the same. He grows into integrity. Yeah, he did. Thank you. That's exactly right. He grows into a person of integrity. And he is. He's another person I stay in touch with who I was texting with last night and just love that guy. <laughs> and so if we could use this as oppor- an opportunity to really examine, okay, what really happened here? Let's look at this, you know, squarely. And now what do we do? Right. Not to and- let him off the hook. He was not. I mean, it was a tough road for him. Tough road. It wasn't just because he didn't get suspended or expelled didn't mean that it wasn't, wasn't a tough road. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, forcing a real reckoning. Uh, but it, it resulted in, and, and you know, the, the main part of restorative justice is that the person who's been harmed should feel that justice has been served and should mm-hmm. feel like, mm-hmm. like repair, you know, somewhat repaired in the process. And that was true, too, um, for, for the girl. I tell both their stories. But I, I was really struck by, um, by the potential. I, you know, I, I really struggled with how to talk about assault in the book and how to offer something in the book and in the writing that would that would further the conversation that wouldn't just reiterate what what we've talked about publicly and and this was sort of my attempt to do that mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think in terms of therapeutic process for the victim having some control having some choices being heard i mean that's that's the healing elixir yeah yeah so you know you were immersed in this for 
more than two years. And how did that affect you and your psyche talking about this, thinking about it and, and being so close to it? Well, you know, actually, the truth is I've been immersed in it for nine years because, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, you know, I wrote the book about girls first. So I've been reporting right. on teens and adolescent sexuality um, for nine years. And, and it was interesting at the, at the end of the book, I normally in my other books have sort of um, ended by taking the reader into um, a situation, profiling a person, going into a classroom that I felt exemplified the kind of thing that we should be doing or, or you know, gave an illustration. And I kept trying to do that and it kept not working. And I realized it was because I was trying to impose something on these situations and that the truth was after nine years of writing about this, that I had something to say, that I wanted to say what I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really stepped out in this book from behind the curtain for the first time. Um, and in the last chapter of the book, I don't give a script, obviously, because I can't do that, but offered a kind of template of the kinds of conversations that are about sex, but not just about sex, about gender dynamics, about media, about pornography, about um, all these, you know, about consent, about all these different things, about, you know, how to help boys stay connected to their feelings beyond happiness and anger that we need to talk to about, talk with boys about, and, and girls too, uh, and not just, you know, the talk, but a lot of little conversations over time. I always say, you know, you wouldn't think if you had one talk with your child about table manners at one right. point in their life mm-hmm. that, you know, okay, now you've got to use your napkin. This is how you use a fork. Make sure you say excuse mm-hmm. me and say thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Job End done, of story. Right? That's it. End of story. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't do that. So there are a lot of small conversations across time, little ways to reinforce Um, that we need to do, you know, for all our kids, but for boys especially, because it's clear in research that when parents talk to boys, when adults talk to boys about these issues, it makes a difference to them. And actually in research shows that it makes more of a difference to boys than it does to girls. Mm-hmm. And so is this, do we imagine that this might fall on the moms uh, who might be more willing and even more capable to talk about this since the dads were, you know, you talked about that these are not, you can't generalize, but some of these students said, my dad's not a bad guy. He's a nice guy. He's cheerful. He's kind. He's funny. We hang out, but he's the guy who just sighs and walks away. Is he, is he, is this dad capable of having a conversation with his son that he he doesn't know the vocabulary for and maybe hasn't even explored himself. I know, I know, I know. It's it's a cycle. And and what research shows is that fathers are the um, main transmitters of restricted, restrictive messages about masculinity and that that is um, not necessarily the guy who's saying, you know, man up, don't be a little bitch, but it is. It's a sigh and walk away kind of guy. Guys, you know, guys would say, my dad wasn't sexist. He wasn't homophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, he was charismatic. He was involved. But I learned the stunted side of masculinity from them. Mm-hmm. And it is essential that fathers, you know, take the leap. I know your dads didn't talk to you. You know, I know you may not have the language. And I think what dads need to know, or father figures, right? It, you know, whatever, whoever the adult role model right. is. Um, is that you don't have to be perfect, right? You don't have to um, know what to say. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to know the questions. You don't have to have a perfect relationship yourself. 
You just have to start the conversation Mm -hmm. because boys really did express very powerfully that they wanted to hear from their fathers, that they wanted to hear about sex. They wanted to hear about the emotional side of sex and that they wanted to hear about yeah, as they I said, they're and that it made a difference to them. They wanted oh. help and they wanted support. And, you know, one guy said, yeah, my mom talks to me sometimes, but it would mean so much more to hear it from my dad. It would feel mm-hmm. more real because, you know, he's a guy, too. Mm-hmm. So oh, just starting. I mean, I really think just starting mm-hmm. um, from somewhere, just reading the book together, you know, having a conversation. It would make saying, you know, we've never had these conversations. I know you're 16 years old. Let's start now because it's been a mistake and you need to have this information and you need to, you know, be thinking about this. That's a start. Are you imagining or is this already in place where people are having book clubs to read and talk about your book? That would be nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I, that, that would be, I mean, with the girl book, I, I know what happened with the girl book, you know, that, that, that did have that, uh, that trajectory, that, that it started with parents and, and moms particularly reading it amongst themselves and talking. It moved to girls themselves reading it, teenage girls, college age girls read it a lot. Um, it's in classrooms. They, you know, they, they discuss it because I gave a TED talk. That's sort of the cheat sheet. I guess they watch that a lot. Mm-hmm. And boys read, I get letters from boys, emails from boys too, who've read it. So it did have that sort of quality. And, and, and I think that, and, and, and I hope this can too, in part because it has that conversation, the book has a conversational quality and it surfaces and tells the story and has the voices of real guys talking about real things. So it feels like, you know, you could be having a conversation with your friend or your brother or the guy down the hall. And, and, and I think that makes it sort of accessible. Yes, I was just thinking of that word. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the book. It doesn't read like an academic research project. Right, because it's it not. Reads- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, I'm wondering if you feel like there's going to be some kind of pendulum swing back when we look at these videos, when we look at the porn and, you know, even the videos or, or the music we can hear on the regular airwaves is so profane. And, you know, in the videos, they might as well be having sex. Well, um, it's not even they might as well be having sex, but they can be very, like, I talk about a video that was, that, that Kanye West dropped while I was working on the book that was the biggest video release um, on YouTube of all time. And can I swear? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> chorus was, you're such a fucking hoe, and I, and I love it. And it was him and Lil Pump. And, and, and I don't want to just like dwell on, on, on hip hop, but it is, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot of fantastic oh. hip hop out there. Um, but the most mainstream consumer product. And Kanye West has a daughter, I believe. He does. And he then like wrote, or Trisha Rose, that's her name. Yeah, he wrote a song saying that he now he was scared of the karma. And, you know, somebody oh. pointed out rightly daughters are not sent down to, you know, be karma for your sins. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. But, but what was I going to say? So, so, you know, I, I, I don't want to just dwell on hip hop because hip hop did not invent sexism or no. is not the first musical genre to express it. But as Trisha, Trisha Rose, who is um, the director of Center for Study of Race and Ethnicity in America at Brown says, uh, you if you want to find openly celebrated sexism, particularly against black women, there's no richer contemporary source than 
commercial mainstream hip hop. And so mm-hmm. in this video, they're walking down, a, the whole video basically is them walking down a hallway, which is lined with alcoves of women who are, they have something over their face, like sort of like a, uh, like a nylon stocking. So they're faceless and mm-hmm. in body stockings. So they're naked on their knees with their arms um, bound behind their back. Mm. And it's just row after, you know, just oh like, Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. And I mean, when you say that, it's like that, what is the difference really? You know, we, we talk a lot about porn and I can talk about porn, but what is the difference there? You know, that's a fine line of difference. And it was the most popular video oh. ever on YouTube. What message does that give boys over and over? And that's one of the things that one of the guys said to me was, you know, music is a big factor in how guys treat women. And when you're driving around, in your car with your friends all day and you're hearing four five six ten times you know fuck that bitch and leave her to a really Mm. catchy beat Mm. it affects your mindset well you know it's so funny because i think many teenagers and I have had this conversation with my son when he plays some of these kinds of music is like, oh, it doesn't affect me. I know. But uh, of course it does. (laughs) I don't know if you're a fan of Jean Kilborn um, and her work on women in advertising. But if it didn't work, you know, I mean, they wouldn't do it. Right. They They wouldn't wouldn't do it if it didn't work. But there's also research that just shows over and over that is the most common response to, to media is that mm-hmm. it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me, right. It I affects other people, but not me. But we know, I mean, every piece of research shows oh. that, you know, that what we consume in media affects our thoughts, our feelings, mm-hmm. our beliefs, our behaviors. And Kilborn has a funny quip. She says, says the person wearing the Gap t-shirt. Right. I love yeah. that. And, yeah. and there is a... Uh, there has been shown over and over to be a spillover effect for men and boys who consume uh, media that is aggressive or towards women or shows women as sexually submissive and men and dominant or um, or portrays male pleasure but not female pleasure, that there is a spillover. There was a study that um, that I talk about where they showed one group of college students, a group, you know, whatever, the control group watched cartoons or whatever, but a reel of clips from R-rated movies that were spliced together that they none of them were violent, but they were all judged to be degrading to women. And they showed female sexual submission, um, male dominance, things that I just mentioned, male gratification, but not female, male control. Uh, and then they had them read account two accounts, one of a stranger rape and one of an acquaintance rape. And everybody, you know, the, everybody agreed the stranger rape, you know, was wrong. But the acquaintance rape, the boys who'd seen the sexualized imagery mm-hmm. were more likely to say that the woman got secretly wanted it, got what mm-hmm. she wanted. Mm-hmm. And that held true regardless of the boys' attitudes towards gender and gender roles or their attitudes towards pornography. So, you know, it was, it, so that's what they call a spillover effect. It, mm-hmm. it affects the way that they look at real life interactions well you're desensitized i mean that's also an evolutionary well and i mean even if you think about like think about fashion like you see something somebody walking down the street and something new and you think well that's ugly i'm I'm, i always think about it as gaucho pants remember you know yeah that was hideous but the first time you saw it the second time you saw it you thought well maybe i don't know and the third time you saw it you thought hey i need some gaucho pants you know and that's that's funny. Right? That's what happens. That yeah. is exact that's how media works. You that's adapt. how advertising works. So of course yeah. it affects them. Mm-hmm. 
of course it affects them and they are bombarded and this is one of the really big places that I think we can make a difference with boys and not that we're going to censor that stuff not that we're going to be able to get rid of it not that they're going to stop watching and listening to it because it's there but with girls we have done such such you know a much better job of saying we know the media messages girls consume are harmful to them they're harmful to their body image they're harmful to their sense of self they're you know they they encourage depression we know all of this stuff and so there are whole there's like a whole industry of girl of of advocacy um mm -hmm. on media literacy for girls to help them resist the messages that they absorb from the culture that reduce them to their bodies we and yet boys grow up in that same culture and yes. worse and yep. we say nothing nothing mm -hmm. And we've even seen that in the eating disorder uh, field here where it used to be, you know, only women would be on these so-called health magazine covers that are retouched and all this stuff. And now what we're seeing is men are on these covers with their six packs. And uh, I think it was Roger Federer who was on the cover of a magazine and he said, I don't know whose arms those are, but I think that guy wants them back <laughs> because he was so... <laughs> He was so, you know, buff and yeah. and had these huge uh, arms. He's like, those are not my arms. But now it's an equal opportunity, um, you know, situation. Yeah, where it is. One, the boys, the one of the boys, talked to me pressure. a lot about that. About and there's that idea of bigorexia, but the but the about you know watching these YouTube videos that tell you how to build muscle or how mm -hmm. to or, or synthol or you know these different weird and super and 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 the six pack thing, which is so unhealthy because it mm -hmm. involves having a lower percentage of body weight than is normal, you know, than, than is healthy for a person. That's mm -hmm. the only way you can get there. And so boys, yes, are definitely under that body image pressure as well. But even more than that, you know, there's, there's the images of male sexual entitlement. There's the images of female sexual submission that bombard them daily. Mm -hmm. And nobody is interrupting to say, you know, Let's take a look at that. Let's step back. Let's get some perspective on mm -hmm. what that means, what they're telling you, why they're telling you that, you know, all these things. The way that we have really, I, I, I think, really learned to do not, you know, it's not perfect, but we have done a much better job of doing that with girls. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I can see that. And I can hear your, um, you know, your empathy and and. and almost a desperation of like, we've got to help these boys. They're suffering. For their sake and for the sake of their female partners. Yeah. Or male partners. That's right. That's right. So you're a culture changer. I hope so. Did you ever think you'd be in this position of really <laughs> helping rewrite this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's felt like a real gift. And the real reward of doing this has been, I get emails from young people all the time and who feel like they've been seen or who feel like they can themselves make change or that they can e either in their own lives or amongst their friends. And that just, you know, it means everything to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see this is not just a job for you. This is really your mission. So you're, I want to wrap up now. I want to be respectful of your time. You. I know you have a I lot go, going yeah. on. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is to just start somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, to start. I feel like if there is one, you know, if I have, if I can boil down 250 pages to one sentence, it's mm -hmm. talk to your boys. Okay. 
Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Peggy. I really appreciate your work. I, I loved your book, and I've been recommending it widely. So congratulations on the success. It's such the right time. And I just really appreciate your work. Thank you. This was super fun. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. <music>